Hi, everyone, and welcome back. I'm Seth Abramovich, senior writer at The Hollywood Reporter. And I'm Chip Pope, international party boy. <laughs> Chip, I think we can say that we're both 100% sober right now. Typically, I am. You're, you're a little bit less so than I am. I like a cocktail or two. Okay. But I don't think either of us particularly partake of the the 420 culture that has become so pervasive in Los Angeles. No, no. And and I think that's probably how I know I'm not really like an addict of anything because you could just go get it if you want to. You can just yeah, get if, high. If you live elsewhere in the United States, um, California has become uh, a place where you can get weed as easily as you can get a hamburger or... Um, well, maybe, I was gonna maybe, say a easier, maybe easier. I was going to say a magazine. I was like, no, you can't. There's no more newsstands. So. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The the newsstand over there on uh, Santa Monica and La Brea, they just have a bunch of bongs and stuff in the yeah. glass case. They have bongs and dildos. I'm just like little kids probably are stopped in cars looking at that. You see it visibly from the street. Yeah. All but, kinds but of no magazines. All kinds of things. You know, blockbusters are now weed emporiums and uh, weed is taking over. So I guess weed will be the, the overarching theme of today's episode, and I, I think you'll, you'll figure out why on It, it Happened, Happened in Hollywood. Okay, welcome back. So I think we set it up pretty well before. This is going to be a very uh, 420 friendly episode. And that's because we have probably the person most identified with weed besides Snoop Dogg. And besides his partner. And besides his partner. Together, they were very identified. Yeah, and that's who who are we talking about? Tommy Chong. Tommy Chong, the legend. Rhymes with bong. And who went to jail for selling bongs. Yes. Which is one thing we'll cover on this episode. (laughs) But there's so much. And um, we wanted to know everything about, you know, he was part of a legendary comic duo called Cheech and Chong Mm -hmm. with Cheech Marin. And, uh, you know, of course, I was vaguely aware of them growing up as this sort of weirdo cult duo but it seemed like something for older kids when i was when i was a kid it it, it was plus in canada is that i guess the weed isn't as a big thing or was it or not Mm, what's the history of weed in canada it's you know british columbia pretty good (laughs) (laughs) it was good i i will admit you know in my youth i definitely smoked weed Okay. Whoa. I know. I never even had any until I was like 35 or something. And then it was like, what it happened? was too much. Uh, my friends got really scared of me. I got like even more uh, talkative, if that's possible. <laughs> and giggly. Say no more. <laughs> yeah. And had the munchies, which all of which I was doing anyway. So I maybe have it like once every couple of years or something. Tommy, you know, he's he's a big proponent of weed, not surprisingly. And um, when I was growing up, these Cheech and Chong movies were on TV all the time. They were like staples of pay cable. And you just didn't realize that at the time how innovative and unique they were because of all the talk about weed and everything. Weed was still very illegal and edgy and, uh, you know, buddy comedies up to that point. You know, you'd had your comedy teams, Laurel and Hardy and Bob Hope and Bing Crosby, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, it seems like a really unique thing to do stoner comedy. Yeah, they basically created a genre, which is now the stoner comedy. But no one had done it before they did it. And they're, I guess you could say, sort of an unusual duo. Tommy is from Vancouver, Canada. He's Canadian. And also Chinese. Part Chinese. And Cheech is... You know, from L.A., East East L.A., and they came together in a really interesting way. They were both musicians. So Chong kind of gets into comedy in a roundabout way. He's up there in Canada working as a musician. Yeah, and and so he actually one day went to try to get a green card because he was from Canada and um, missed a gig, and Barry Gordy fired him. Well, but then, as he tells it, he kind of said, well, you can come back if you want. And he decided this was a good time to sort of leave 
being a session musician behind and um, and explore his inspirations. And his inspiration was doing comedy. I didn't want to be a side musician anymore. And so I went back to, um, to, to Vancouver. And by that time, we had two clubs. We had a after-hours club and a strip club. And so I turned the strip club into an improvisational comedy. Mm. And that's when we met Cheech. Because we needed a straight man, and, and Cheech applied for the gig and came down and saw what we were doing, loved it, and so he joined up. And then we got fired from that gig. <laughs> we got fired because we changed the strip club from a biker club where you had 25 drunk guys throwing money at the girls to a, a theater. <laughs> a theater. Where Not great tippers in the Well, 350 yeah. people would come and count their change <laughs> and order a, a glass of wine and sit there all night. Yeah. <laughs> and, and in the meantime, we're on stage having a great time. We were doing comedy bits. We were with the we, had, we the girls would go naked, and they would we had all these bits. Oh, it was incredible! So, the, our success ruined the club business. You know, we couldn't make money from twenty five drunk guys, and we couldn't make money any money from people paying you know the door. And so, uh, my brother wanted to put it back to the strip club, and so he fired us basically, the group. And so the group. Uh, before we, we before we quit, we had one gig, and the Three Dog Night were in town, and they, their management and everybody came down to see our, us perform. And so when Cheech and I decided to become a, a pair, we went down to L.A. and hooked up with the Three Dog Night, and then we uh, managed by them for a minute. And then Cheech and I just went around and did all the, all the open mic nights, which were very few because there was no comedy clubs back then. There were black clubs that had entertainment. And I, because of my Motown experience, I had an in with them. So this was a different L.A. at the time, you know. There was no comedy store. There was yeah. no comedy scene at all, really. Right. There's no infrastructure. Um, and they're sort of point. playing in these, like, little ramshackle rock clubs opening for three dog night. <laughs> um, Which is interesting, yeah, because after the comedy club glut it became novel again to do comedy not in a comedy club right in a rock so club it it's came like back around yeah. but they were perfectly aligned for this because they were uh, a singer and a guitarist and they had songs that they had written you know and they had even other backing band members but their comedy bits that would sort of introduce the songs were playing so well with the crowd that sometimes they didn't touch their instruments at all and they just started leaning into the comedy of it right now, one of the things that I found surprising was that he was very open about the fact that they stole a lot of their sketches from another group. And the way he saw it is he's just stealing the premises and working off that. But, you know, in the, in the comedy world, that's, that's the biggest no-no. Yeah, theft. well, it's considered taboo. Yes. But Saturday Night Live always gets uh, accused of stealing sketch ideas and... Anyway, it was funny, to, you know, and this was, uh, do you know anything about the committee, by the way? Yeah, it was uh, Howard Hessman, and then Carl Gottlieb was a member uh, who, he went on to be one of the writers on The Jerk and Jaws, actually. And uh, they started in San Francisco, and then they had an offshoot that was down here. And they had uh, bits that they did, and they, they, clearly, I guess they had a stoner bit. Right. So he was a fan of this sort of pre-SNL, you know, hot comedy sketch group called The Committee. And uh, he caught some of their shows and he sort of decided to cover their songs, quote unquote. I had seen The Committee so many times in L.A. So that's when I went up to Vancouver. I, I patterned the, the strip club after The Committee. Mm. And, and that's and, and I would, we, we stole a lot of their bits, you know. Or borrowed them. <laughs> borrowed them. We didn't steal them. We borrowed them. Are they well, aware well, the of that? Thing, see, that was the thing. They called themselves a committee, so there was no one name that wrote anything. And so you could, anybody could be the committee. Right. And so they would come and do these bits. You know, I'd watch the bits, and then we'd run up to Vancouver, and then we'd recreate them. And so, <laughs> so when Cheech and I uh, went on our own, we had a, a ton of material. You know, and then when we got to L.A., here's what made Cheech and Chong was that when we got to L.A., our sex 
jokes weren't going over. And we we had a gig at this one club. It was a dance club where they made everybody stop dancing to watch comedy. Oh my gosh! And and, and they were pissed off, and so yeah. they didn't laugh at the first show at all. And so Cheech and I, we got another show to do to the same people. And so so I said to Cheech, I says, there must be a character that you can do. You know, the, you're from here. And she says, yeah, there's one, but I don't know. I'm a little. I said, what? He said, well, it's a little detrimental to the, you know, the Chicanos. I said, well, that's, that's what we want. That's, that's, <laughs> that's our job. That's what we do. And so I said, what is the character? And he, he told me a little bit. He said, because we were standing outside the club one time, and this uh, lowrider pulled up in the car and goes, hey, man, can you tell me where Van Nuys Boulevard is? And we said, yeah, you're on it. He said, oh, hey, thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that was the character. So Cheech and Chong basically developed a whole cast of characters that they played on stage that came out of improv. And so they would recreate the improvs on these albums that they had where they played a lot of different characters. But when it comes time to shoot a movie, they decide they're not going to play a bunch of different characters and they're just going to play basically these two characters that appear on several other albums, Pedro and Chong's character, who is just named Man. Not the the man or anything, just Pedro and man. And so Pedro is the kind of iconic, uh, I guess, uh, Chicano character that Cheech comes up with. And man is basically a tripped out stoner guy. Hijo de la chingada. Is that a joint, man? <laughs> like a quarter pounder, man. Let's <laughs> play. Be careful with that shit, man. Uh, is it heavy stuff, man? <laughs> Will it blow me away? <laughs> put your seatbelt on, man. I think that much. Yeah. I've been smoking since I was born, man. I could smoke anything, man. Okay, so they start putting out these records. The records are an instant hit. They sell a lot of copies. And, um, and win Grammy Awards. Oh, yeah. They're, which they're, is crazy. They're didn't their first, first record? record? Yeah. yeah. Won a Grammy Award. <laughs> <laughs> Bizarre, which probably doesn't make the members of the committee very happy. No, and he also got into a fight with the Three Dog Night guys and ran into them in the elevator at the Grammys. And there was a lot of awkward encounters in, in uh, his <laughs> recollections. But they're doing well, and they're they're touring a lot, and they're thinking about what the next step is to get to the next level. We do a right album and then go tour and then do an album tour, and we're on our third. A tour to Australia and uh, I was not happy <laughs> because every time we'd go to Australia we'd miss summer in LA and then we'd hit winter in Australia and then after we do the tour we'd be back in time for winter in LA and so I, I you know and we were quite successful at the time and so uh, we would uh, all the help, the, you know, the housekeepers and that would enjoy our house, <laughs> you know. And so I told Cheech, I said, you know, we got to do a movie, man. And so I, I wrote a movie. I, I wrote a movie with, a, with a, another writer called Joe Lasker was his name. And it was called Jack and the Weedstock. Okay. <laughs> and it was about a couple of guys, Cheech and Chong, trying to get to a concert and and the only way they get to the concert, well, they, they're going to go to a concert, but they needed weed. And Chong gets the, the job of buying the weed. And instead of buying weed, he gets talked into buying seeds because of the seeds, man. Then you can grow all the weed that you need. <laughs> and, but now we don't have any weed, any money, and we got seeds. And so Cheech gets mad, throws the seeds out the window, and he grows into this giant weed stock. And that was basically, you know, and then we have adventures with the giant and everything. Right. And so that was the movie I wanted to make. But when Lou Adler, our uh, producer, heard, you know, that we wanted to do a movie, he went to Paramount and started making a deal for us. And so then when it became a real movie, not no longer, you know, a, a script in my head, then we started thinking about uh, a Cheech and Chong movie. And then we wrote, uh, or I wrote, most of the uh, the script, and it became Up in Smoke. Right on. And all, but what we wanted to do, we just wanted to get all the elements. Wanted to get music, and the low rider, and uh, weed. That was, that was the <laughs> elements. Go. 
So that's interesting. Jack and the weed stalk. You know, say it's the early 70s and you're probably a 65-year-old white executive somewhere, you know, reading this script about Jack and a weed stalk. Like, probably like, well, what, what is this? <laughs> and then that morphs into, well, let's just do a Cheech and Chong movie. But it, it was interesting to hear him describe the plot for Jack and the Weedstock because that's basically one of these simple kind of stoner plots of these movies. Because, like, what what do Harold and Kumar want to do? They just want to get high and go to White Castle. Right. right. It's always, like, the thinnest of plots to just get you from point A to point B in the most kind of freewheeling manner. With, with lots of diversions. That's it, Yeah, exactly. And- but uh, it was interesting because you had asked him, you know, did they feel bad about leaving all their other famous record characters behind and just focusing on on the two stoners? And I thought his response was pretty funny. And so out of all the characters that y'all had been doing, mm-hmm. you know, did you find it restrictive to not be able to do voices or just to narrow it down not to just do Pedro Man for a whole movie? Or? No, we're, we're, both of us, we, we weren't into working hard. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so the easiest path was the one that we took, you know. We could do a movie with those two guys. Great, great. We weren't. We're, we, we did things that... Uh, out of humor and out of necessity more than anything. We, we did the movie much like we did the albums, and, uh, and it was so much fun, you know, because Cheech, uh, he's such a, a treasure trove of, of stories. You know, his life is, mm-hmm. I mean, to this day, I mean, I've been with him almost 50 years, and, <laughs> and he's still, every time I see him, he's got... Oh, you guess what happened to me? (laughs) (laughs) It's some phenomenal story that we could have done. We could have done movies forever. Right, because it's interesting in Up in Smoke how it's very uh, cartoonish in ways, but also there's stuff that just seems like it had to come from reality, like the whole INS wedding thing. I mean, that's a real thing probably, right? Sure. Calling the INS on yourself. I was reading at the time, you know, about these people getting deported. And and the big thing was that they would, a lot of them would be back before the bus got back. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they, they they you know they have that line like they do now. <laughs> That's why I'm laughing at Trump you know, because because you know you're trying to keep Mexicans out of it's like trying to keep a a, a dozen hungry cats away from the food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what? He, he likens them to hungry cats. Wanting to come to a plate of food, probably not the most politically correct analogy, but no, uh, but you know, he's also almost 80 years old, so and (laughs) clearly he's just he has nothing to prove to anybody, so he kind of is just one of those guys that's like your your dad or your grandfather, where you just is gonna say what they're gonna say. And it's worth you know noting that this that kind of humor like pervades in all their movies. You know, so they in, in a way they feel a little dated, and that you would never sort of see that that kind of joke anymore, right? But there's also something sort of like it's like a, a time capsule, yeah. Is that what you mean like it, uh, standards would be different today? But it's not like offensive. It's not like you're talking about birth of a nation or something. It's just like oh, he's got fake boobs and he's hitchhiking. And, <laughs> you know, it's it, it is very Warner Brothers cartoony. A lot of it. Yeah, they do that comedy really well and you just don't see that kind of comedy anymore right but there were so many things that you know watching up and smoke again i realized we now take for granted that they were kind of the firsts and uh, we talked about that with tommy and so many of the things in the movie are now standards of like these drug movies like you always have the bumbling cops running around (laughs) in the background (laughs) And and then, we, you know, we, I was discussing it with Chip. He said you, you were both, neither of you were the straight man. You had two no. non-straight men in a comedy duo, yeah. which seems sort of breakthrough. Yeah. yeah, we let the audience kind of be the, the, the straight, <laughs> you know. And, and if you didn't get into, if, if you're that straight, you didn't get into it, then you had to be with someone that would explain the movie to you, you know. <laughs> right. Because that's what, the kids loved it, because the kids... You know, they they don't know anything about sex, but they know about, you know, that funny stuff, you know, pratfalls and, and, you know, funny, stupid things that we would do, you know. One of the the funniest scenes to me was Cheech peeing in the hamper. 
Right. <laughs> so good. And that was, yeah. see, that was improvised. Oh, see, man, Cheech and I were having lunch, and he was telling me about the time that he was so drunk or high <laughs> that he, he had to go, and he peed in the hamper. And then he looks back, <laughs> and he looks over, sees the toilet. And so I told Lou, you know, okay, we got to set up for peeing in the hamper. Okay, so they they shoot this thing, and... Lou Adler, who was their record producer, who ended up directing it, came in under budget. They were given a million dollar budget by Paramount Studios, and he came in at seven fifty. And he also owns the Roxy, so you know the third act of the movie takes place at the Roxy. So it's like I've got a place where we can film for free. That probably helps you come in under budget. I think his other claim to fame is that he always sits next to Jack Nicholson at Lakers games. Oh, oh I didn't know that one. So they put together this movie. The plot, basically, guy picks up a hitchhiker, they smoke a lot of weed, pick up some girls on the street. Then they uh, drive a van that's entirely made of weed, unknowingly. And Stacy Keach and um, a group of bumbling cops chase them all along the way and ends up at Roxy. Sold. <laughs> Jack and the Weed Stock, forget it. But that is a comedy. So they cobble together this... Uh, the stoner comedy, I'm sure everyone involved was quite stoned while they were making it. They present a first rough cut to Paramount executives, the stuffy guys <laughs> in their 60s. <laughs> Toward the end of the movie, all of a sudden, I'd be left in my trailer. And it, it was weird, you know, because usually I was there, you know, because I'd help uh, make sure everything was right. But then toward the end, more and more, and then oh, Lou was taken over as a director. And so then Lucid came to us. He's okay. We're going to we're going to show the movie tonight, and it's a, it's a li- little more than a rough cut, but we're, we're going to try this ending. And so we went to the the screening for Paramount. They had all the studio heads and everything. It was the worst screening ever, in my estimation. It was so bad because the ending was it was all a dream. Oh. That we go back to PCH, and Stacy Keach is now a uniform cop, and he's looking in the window, back to that scene of the road, and it was Lou's instinct that he wanted to keep the the record bit, you know, the right, record right. bit, you know, he always that Cheech and Chong's greatest hits, and so he, he discombobulated the movie that way, and. They, we all had a meeting there, and what do you think? And, it, and when the we, the executives, when they left, they were, they walked by. I was like they were viewing a coffin. <laughs> you know that look that. Uh. Had the rest of it worked up until the ending, or was it just not really, not really? It worked, but there was a lot of tweaks in that. You know, because what 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 the movie never had with that ending was the journey. Like the movie right. was a journey. It, it and all of a sudden the journey became a dream and so so it totally didn't work and so then i told him i said no that's wrong and so they said what do you suggest i said well i i know exactly what it what we need but i have to direct it and so i wouldn't tell lou what the ending was and he, he that's when we split basically you know because all of a sudden now i just pulled the rug underneath him and I directed the last, the, the last bit, which is very simple. Hey, man, we did really good last night, you know. We're going to have a bad band. Uh, we had them eating right out of their hands. Huh? Uh, we're going to be big, man, really big, man. We're going like, to be bigger than Ruben and the Jets, man, I bet you. Shoot. All we got to do is keep practicing, man, you know, like just keep it together. Wow. Yeah, we need a manager, though. That's the only thing. My cousin. He doesn't have a job, man. We'll make him the manager. Besides that, he's got a van, too, man. It'll be heavy. Yeah. That was a really a whack at Lou. And and, <laughs> and, and then, hey, you got, hey, give me some of that. You know, then he drops the hash on his, on his balls and that. Right. That was the ending. Right. And then go on to the next adventure. You know, you don't want to bring back ugly memories. You know, you want to keep, keep that ship going in the right direction and we did that and then as soon as and then when we saw the screening with that ending and it was like then we knew and then i we used to go to screenings and i'd leave you know halfway through because it was so good it was 
the crowd was, they were, they were going apeshit with it, you know. It was great. So the dream ending that Lou Adler cooked up, that one was not working. And so they retrofitted it with a different ending where they just kind of drive off into the sunset and drop some hash on their private parts <laughs> yeah. and uh, screams. And then suddenly the whole work, the whole movie just magically worked. Right. I'm, I'm guessing that there were more changes than just the ending. Right, right. But, you know, sometimes it's just that one thing that affects a whole movie. Well, he whatever it was, it did work because right. what they had was some kind of lightning in a bottle. Exactly. It was innovative. People hadn't seen that kind of thing before. It definitely was a unique kind of buddy comedy that the movies had not seen yet. And what was funny was that Cheech and Chong themselves didn't know what they had. And the biggest star in Hollywood basically told them to their face. And still, it didn't sink in what they had. I think the best encounter, though, was with the Warren Beatty after we did Up in Smoke. Uh, we're in the Paramount lot. Now, Warren didn't know that we were looking for the next gig, you know, because we hadn't worked. We did a movie. And so, you know, you stand up, you know, our income stopped. And so by the time we finished the movie, we, we were hurting because we, we had a little bit from the movie, but nothing, you know, nothing. So Stanton like we're doing our concerts. And so Warren Beatty saw us on the lot, and he stopped to congratulate us. And he says, you guys have no idea what you've done. And she took it as kind of like an insult, you know. <laughs> I understood exactly what Warren Beatty was saying. Because you can live your entire life in Hollywood and be in every movie and not get a hit like Up in Smoke, you know. That was so rare. I mean, to a worldwide hit to the point where, you know, people were having midnight showings every weekend for months, for years. Up and Smoke played for like 10 years in, in Paris every Sunday night. Yeah. So so I understood what Warren was saying. She took a little bit of offense to it, but I totally understand. But before we had a chance to say, hey, Warren, can you help us with the next movie? He drove off. <laughs> <laughs> the movie comes out. It's the summer of 1978. Right. It Big comes hit. out in August of 78. And a movie that had just come out a month before. Animal House. So, you know, you're seeing kind of a sea change where these... Um, I guess after the kind of independent ethos of the studio, you know, when the studio shifted a little bit in the early 70s towards independent movies, I feel like these kind of snobs versus the slobs type comedy gets going in this it, summer as well. So you could lump in up and smoke with Animal House. Yeah, and there was this sort of classism that sort of ran between both of them, you know, the... the you know, Chong's character is supposed to be from an animal house. He's supposed to be one of those preppy prep school, you know, guys who like disappoints his father. But yeah, what an exciting summer for for comedy and for, you know, movies in general. So Up in Smoke made 45 million. Um, so not bad for a movie that cost $750,000. Oh, yeah. But of course, Crazy. with Mo Money comes... Mo problems. Right. And he mentioned there they already had a little rift with Lou Adler over the end of the movie. Right. And that kind of... carried over into, you know, the profits from the movie because their deal was not one that involved profit, participation, or, you know, any of the back end. And Lou had a much richer deal. And so right away, Lou, their longtime record producer, uh, sort of becomes an enemy of, of the duo and uh, they split with him. So they had to find new representation. They want to look for a richer deal. And that involves finding a new business manager. And that is what leads to Cheech and Chong eventually becoming enemies. Right. The pitfalls of Hollywood. I mean, our percentage was, you know, compared to Lou's, he owned the company, you see. Okay. And, and then when we did the movie, you know, the, the split was n not fair at all. You know, I mean, Cheech and I split, but then he, Lou, had ownership. Right. The movie didn't make you rich. No, and I think that was a good thing. I really do. I really do. Because uh, it forced us. Like our records, you know. I mean, no one's more creative than a hungry entertainer. <laughs> right. You know, then you get creative. 
you know. But it made you a superstar. Yeah, only with certain fans, just fans, uh, but not, no. The superstar came much, much, much later, especially after we did uh, Next Movie and right. Nice Dreams and all them. You see, now, they, now we, have, we, we cleaned up on those. Okay. Right, you know, yeah, all, I was wondering all, if your deals changed yeah, and things after that. great deals. And, in fact, Chish and I kind of broke up over the business manager that we ended up again. So when we split with Lou, we never, we never had our own lawyer. We had nobody. And so then I met this um, loose cousin, actually, uh, Marshall Blonstein. He uh, turned me on to this guy that he met, his neighbor, Howard Brown, who was uh, a guy from New York, a hustler from New York. He, Howard was trying to make it with different trips in Hollywood. But I, I liked him right away because I like gangsters, man. <laughs> and, and Howard was a, a bona fide Jewish not a gangster, but he hung with the gangsters. So they have this new uh, cutthroat Hollywood business manager, Howard Brown, who he describes as a Jewish gangster, or if not actually a gangster, definitely gangster adjacent. And um, Howard is going to get Cheech and Chong the deal they deserve. Then Howard says, okay, now you need a movie deal. He says, so... He says, you know, you never really got paid. What, what, what do you want to do? What would you do a movie for? And I said, a million bucks would be nice. He says, yeah, okay. He says, I'll, I'll go talk to Tanner, Ned Tanner. And then he called me up. He said, okay, I'm, I got a meeting with Ned at noon, um, and I'll, I'll call you at the, the Hamburger Hamlet on Sunset as soon as I finish. And so I'm sitting at the Hamburger Hamlet waiting for the call, you know. Howard calls up and he goes, okay, I got a deal. I said, great. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. He says, well, wait. He says, you can't ask for a million, you know. You got nowhere to go. So I asked for two. And I got it. I said, wow. fabulous, great. Okay, <laughs> come on, let's have a party, you know. And I, let me tell Cheech. She said, wait, wait, wait. He says, that meeting took a half hour, you know. And I had my suit on. We used to call them suits because he always made sure he had the right suit on. You know, he said, I had my suit on and, and it was early. So I phoned up Frank Price over at uh, Columbia. I said, Frank, you want to talk? He said, yeah, love, love to. So boom, he goes over. He said, now I got you two at Universal. So we, we got to go for three at least, you know, and, and a multi-picture deal, you know, not just one picture. You got to, you got to get a couple. <laughs> so I'm, I said, is that it? And no, there's more. <laughs> He kept going on. He said, here's the deal. Now, they want to hear three movies. You give them three movies, they're going to pick two. And they're going to pay you uh, like three and then three and a half all in, you know, plus 50% of the uh, gross. Wow, 50%. Know. Do you have to split that? Uh, that's just for you or it's for you? Uh, for uh, no, the team? it's always for Cheech and I. Okay. Was, we're, we're, everything split. we've done it was always mm -hmm. split down the middle because we write. Even though I d directed them. You know, and I, I made that stipulation. I have to be the director. I never took director money. I just split everything with Cheech. Mm -hmm. And so then Howard says, yeah. I said, any more? He's well, there's more. There's more. I said, what? He's you got to tell him three stories, and they're going to pick two. I said, okay, when does that happen? He's well, it happens, uh, what, what, I think, Monday or something like that. You're going to go down there. I said, okay. He's well, wait. Here's the deal. I told him, you can't just walk in there, you know. They got to give you some money, so you're each going to get fifty thousand dollars when you walk in the door. <laughs> oh my! So, <laughs> I I told Cheech. Cheech is still not very happy with Howard, and he's like, "Well, oh, got so." Cheech says, "Okay," and I, you know, then I told him that we we were going to get fifty grand uh, each. We walk in the door. He hates being wrong, man. <laughs> <laughs> and so, this is how much he hates being wrong. He put the check in his back pocket and he put his pants through the through the laundry <laughs> <laughs> he lost his 50 grand oh my god well they recut him a new check but, <laughs> but you know what i'm saying so so we go to uh, to columbia and there's frank price and sherry lansing and marb and antonowski i'm glad of my my memory is incredible <laughs> and and they're all there and they're leaning. They want to hear the stories. Well, on the way there, I kind of 
formulated a couple of stories <laughs> <laughs> in my head. Because you gotta, don't like to work. I got a million yeah. of them. <laughs> <laughs> and so I told them all these stories. And Cheech is hearing them for the first time. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, this kind of just illustrates why the average person thinks that show business is just all a flight of fancy and not exactly <laughs> real at all. Because <laughs> it's like, oh, you got a million? Yeah, I go for two million. Okay, well, three and a half million. All right. Well, that's a bargain. You and Cheech are going to split it come two up, ways. Come up with the stories in the limo on the way yeah, over. Yeah, just improvisation and weed, basically, <laughs> which is just the way that their whole career has run up to this point. So why should it be any different when they're getting into these halls of power with people that can make the money? So they got their deal, and then they released a series of sequels or follow-up movies. And for a while, they're all they're doing better than the next. You know, they have kind of a peak with, I guess, next movie and uh, Nice Dreams. Right. And he started going, instead of to the committee, who I guess wanted nothing to do with them, they were now going to the Groundlings, which was taking off and finding talent there. And uh, I think that's where they found Edie McClurg and also Paul, Paul Rubens, Rubens, who has a great scene in... Uh, Nice dreams. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. I'm sorry I took the money. I'm sorry. I'm That's enough, sorry. That's enough, sorry. That's enough, dear. I'm That's awfully just sorry. Fine. That's fine. Now, I'm boys, sorry. all the money is here. Come along, Howard. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Time for your lobotomy. I'm sorry. <laughs> That was pre uh, Pee Wee fame. So Paul Rubin's first taste of fame came through the Cheech and Chong duo. Meanwhile, all this is taking a toll on on their very close friendship. Until then, were you always like brothers, or how, how would you describe your relationship? Closer, closer than brothers. It was it was kind of freaky. There was a, a bond, and I remember when the bond was broke. Up until then, I mean, we were so, so close. There was a, some kind of bond. I don't know how you can explain it. And then I, I moved to France. I moved to Europe. And she stayed in America. And uh, I think we were between movies somewhere. Anyway, uh, Hank Williams Jr., all my crazy friends are coming over tonight, the football guy. Right. He had a video, and he wanted all his crazy friends, and he wanted Cheech and Chong. And so I was in Paris at the time, so they sent me a ticket, and uh, I came to Nashville, and I hadn't seen Cheech for, for practically months. And so as soon as I got in, I called his room, and uh, he was uh, a little weird, you know. Hey, how are you doing? You know, usually it's like, what's up? You know, and we get together. So I says... I'm I'm here. Come on up. He says, uh, uh, I'm done having uh, a drink or something with some of the the, the actors, you know. And uh, I felt it. Wow, felt weird. So then I went down there and at the table, and, and he wasn't really talking to anybody, but he was ignoring me. It was like he had changed. He had changed. So they break up. Basically, right. So their, they go their, their separate movies ways. start doing each movie starts doing a little bit worse than the previous movie. Right, and eventually they abandon the stoner characters and they do the Corsican brothers. Right, and they or there was a things are tough all over where they play a couple of Arab sheiks, something which definitely could not do today if you're not an Arab sheik. And so basically, the audience is sort of left Cheech and Chong behind. And so we're talking, what, through the 90s. Right. So there's a different kind of comedy is coming in. I guess you got the Fairly Brothers. I mean, there's still buddy comedies, let's face it. You got Kingpin, what, Dumb and Dumber. Adam Sandler. I Adam think, Sandler stuff. The gold standard for comedy in the 90s. And right. It's less weed-oriented and more still adult man children. But they go their separate ways, and uh, they, you know, they work in TV. Cheech goes on to Nash Bridges. Chong goes on to that 70s show. Mm -hmm. True. And then around the early 2000s, around 2002, 2003, things start to thaw between them. And, I, and they start talking about the possibility of getting back together for, for one more movie. But for Chong, the very thing that propels him to his success 
becomes his undoing. <laughs> Welcome to a very special episode of Behind the Music. <laughs> Explain what happened with your arrest. We had a bong company, and we were selling bongs, and we were under investigation for about a year. And the DEA would come around, and they had to have some of them had, had headbands on. <laughs> you know, big cops with brush cuts and headbands, and they tried to, uh, you know, just follow me around wherever I went selling bongs. But what's wrong I, with selling bongs? Well, that's what I said. But apparently, they had a law. It was a paraphernalia law that if you ship paraphernalia across the state line, you violated a federal mail statute. You're using the mails for illegal purposes. What year was this? Oh, three is when I when they came down on me. Hard to believe now. It's completely legal here. Yeah, I mean, you got to feel vindicated oh, throughout the I years. I felt vindicated of... then, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I was How bogus. You're like, you knew it wasn't That's why I want to yeah. tell Fel Felicity. Felicity Huffman. Felicity Huffman. Hey, I want to tell her, relax. You're going on a mission. They're going on a mission. Really, I swear to God, there's no punishment in the federal prison. You know what it is? Accommodations. You get computers. You got <laughs> you got your your nice, comfortable cubicle. You got your little cubicle. You're in with the other intelligent, nice people. You were uh, in there with Jordan Belfort, right? Yeah, I was in there with, with, what, what with the like? Wolf of Wall Street. It was great. It was great. He was funny because he <laughs> he's a genius, without doubt. You know, little little crooked, but you know, a genius. And so, I was writing a book. And he'd come in, you know, after playing tennis <laughs> and, and say, what are you doing? I'm writing a book. He's oh, I'm going to write a book. So <laughs> he started writing a book and then he showed me what he had written. Like I'm like a, a teacher or something, you mm -hmm. know, <laughs> what do you think of that? And I read it because I knew he was a genius. I knew that I could really diss him. And you have to, you know, no matter how good they are, you have to, oh, yeah, shit, you haven't written anything. <laughs> That's basically what I told him. And he got really mad. Oh, he got hurt. Because all he did was copy Tom Wolfe, The Bonfires uh. of the Vanities, because you know, that's, that's the kind of guy he is. And so then he said, well, what should I write? And I said, write the stories that you've been telling me every night. Because every night he'd tell me a different story, and they were crazy. You know, the Quaalude story and all the stuff that happened. Right. And, and I said, write that. That's your, that's your book. And so he did. And we were both out, we we're both on probation, and we weren't allowed to talk to each other. And he drove up with his car, and he peeps a horn, and I lean out the window. He goes, I sold my book. I, I got my book. I sold my book. It's going to make a movie. Wolf of Wall Street, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, where do we even start with that story? This is like a sitcom. <laughs> Comes in from playing tennis. I mean, it's just so casual, this prison, <laughs> sounds like. But yeah, you probably didn't know that Tommy Chong is the reason Wolf of Wall Street ever even happened. That's insane. All right. So that happened. And then so he's uh, doing his nine months in prison. You know, it seems like he's making friends and thriving in there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as we mentioned before, uh, him and Cheech had reconciled and wanted to make a movie or started to talk about one when he, he went to prison. And to Cheech's credit... He kept working on the project while Chong was, was in prison, and he even once came to visit him in prison to work on it. Before I went into prison, we were working on a movie. We had gotten an offer from uh, New Line, and so we were kind of working on a movie. But by that time, he did not want me to direct anymore. He, he did not want me to have that power. And so... Uh, we were looking at Larry Charles, and uh, we were working with Larry Charles, actually, writing writing a script. You know, we're not that kind of comedians, you know, so it never really worked out. So Cheech came to visit me one time, just one one time, to work on, on the movie with Larry Charles. He, Larry Charles came, too. And then when, when I got out, you know, the movie almost happened, but not really. So, yeah, that was interesting, but the movie never happened, unfortunately. But uh, I think in the past few years, they've been uh, totally reconciled and right, doing... Right, tour and stuff. They do shows together. Yeah, and you can see them sort of do the old characters and go through video clips of all their career highlights. And it's, it's sort of nice to know that these guys who had this intensely close bond 
and then Hollywood success pulled them apart that they eventually came back together. Right. Time heals all wounds. But, you know, Tommy appeared on my TV recently. I hate to even admit. Not just your TV. Where it was. Uh But um, I kind of got sucked into this whole. uh, Mass Singer. It was the Mass Singer. Right. That was what it was called. Flash forward ahead to 2019. And uh, this really weird reality show has sort of taken the the world by storm called the the, the, the mass singer or whatever and they're in these elaborate costumes i'm sure you've seen it and they're singing and the uh pineapple which was he had a head of a pineapple and the body of a sort of cartoon surfer pulls off his mask in the second week and um it's tommy chong oh <laughs> are you gonna say cheech and he's as um Actually, what was interesting was that Jenny McCarthy guessed that it was Cheech. Oh, see? So she was so close. Whoa. That was impressive, I have to say. But anyway, the first thing I wanted to know was how he ended up becoming the pineapple. And it turns out they get to choose their own costumes. I looked at the other costumes and I was, oh, I did not want to wear all that stuff, you know. But the pineapple was more casual, you know. And I, and they, you know, those people, they, they know my character. You know, hey, pick a car. And, of course, I'm going to pick pineapple, you know, because it was a stoner. stoner yeah, now thing. it makes sense. Yeah, it was like a surfer <laughs> with a pineapple head. See, Cheech and I, we got a funny thing going on now, you know, because he, he gets a lot of movies, you know, that he does on the side. And he's always been considered the singer of the two of us. You know, he always sang, you know, he sang lead on on everything. He was a right. lead singer. No, pineapple comes up and they get me. <laughs> <laughs> and were you singing? Is it, are they really singing oh, yeah, live no, on that show? I'm singing, I'm singing, yeah. I thought, well, what they did, they recorded me you right. know, first in the beginning. They re, they did a, a, re, a recording of it, like Cheech and Chong Records, you know. So I knew then that I could relax because they got a recording. But when I got to the show, they said, oh, no, you have to sing. Of course, they use the recorded version, even, but they, they make you sing. They make you sing just in case you do a better job. Right. You know, they, have the the they have a choice, yeah. I and, didn't see it. So, like, what song did you sing? What songs did you sing? I will survive. Just as long as I know how to love, I know I'll be alive. And they made a big deal. I mean, it was choice. a big hit. And, um, but they made a big deal of how they, they kept it a secret and they sequestered all the stars. So oh, yeah. What was that like? Horrible. <laughs> Worse than prison? Like being Hannibal. It was like being Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> you know, you get isolated. Don't, don't go near him. I had a t-shirt that says, don't talk to me. <laughs> and you're just sitting there waiting. You know, someone bring you a drink. And, in and your pineapple deal. head the whole time? Uh, no, no. But I had a, like, almost like a mask or something. And no one could come near us. <laughs> yeah, you know, we you know we get hide behind. It was like coming across the border or something. You had to hide behind the in the SUV, you know, yeah. and no one could see you. you and could, you didn't know who the other celebrities were. Not a clue. Not and how long were you in uh, sequestered? Thank God, I was the second one off. So how many Thank days is God. that? Uh, about a month or so. Wow, wow a month, and you couldn't on. see your family, or was it really? Oh like no, prison? no, you could, you, you could go home. You could go home. You could go home, <laughs> but you in custody. <laughs> I imagine them in some Protective kind of like custody, some cell or something, oh, and they would let was, you out for the show. It, it was weird. It was weird because I'm I'm used to talking, as you can tell. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. But phew, that was that was one of the worst experiences. The good part was that, and the reason I took it is because I wanted to really get singing lessons they, they they give you a singing coach oh no right. kidding it was great it was great oh yeah because coaches you know they you know they, little things they teach you how to learn lyrics and you know how to hit the notes and yeah they teach all the little tricks and Do you get to keep the right. costume no no <laughs> i did not want that pineapple <laughs> there's no reason for it man it's so crazy it's just the kind of career you'd expect from a guy who is high all the time <laughs> and just kind of improvising his way through life. It's just like, okay, this happened, then this happened, then I'm a pineapple, on the mass singer because I want free singing lessons. It's really kind of amazing. He has had a pretty amazing and varied career. He's met everybody. He's done everything. He's pretty much, you know, an American icon, I would say. Totally. When you get to that level, even when you're famous for being a stoner, you get to meet some important people. And he's met a lot of the presidents. I don't think he's a big fan of Trump, although he seems to be very entertained by Trump. 
Right. I think he likes it in that way that, hey, it's a comedy comedy fodder. Right. You know, to get to talk about the comedy. Trump could easily be like the the Stacy Keach character from Up in Smoke. Right, know, just, exactly. This bumbling just square. Stiff. Hello, Radio Dispatch. This is codenamed Hard Hat. Codenamed Hard Hat. Do you read me? Over. Hey, got something for you, lard ass. Hard Hat! Hard Hat! Do you understand? Lard ass, lard ass. <laughs> but yeah, so he, he kind of like spilled some tea about the uh, presidents he's met. Here he is talking about our last two Democratic presidents, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. I met Bill, and Bill, Bill is a, he's a suit. He's an empty suit. You know, you think he's cool and everything? Nah, fuck, he's an empty fucking suit. I met him, had took a picture with him, and he didn't want to talk to me. He didn't want to, he didn't want to have anything to do with me, man. And I'm standing there. Barack Obama, on the other hand, is a big Cheech and Chong fan. <laughs> right. He told you, hey, I love you guys, man. Hey, what's up? You know, I know, he know Big Bamboo, knows everything. And, and Cheech told me, he says, Tommy, you know, wants to get uh, a pardon. And Brock says, yeah, fill out the papers. I'll pardon him. <laughs> <laughs> and awesome. I was going to do that. Then I realized, no, that, you have to, when you get pardoned, you have to admit that you did it. You know, you have to admit, and then you get pardoned for your crime. And fuck that, I, I never did anything wrong. Besides, I like the notoriety of it, you know. <laughs> right. I like the fact that, oh, yeah, because I'll do that. I'll be at dinner parties, you know, and I'll, oh, yeah, the time I was in prison and everything just stopped. Don't <laughs> 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 look at me. <laughs> so there you have it. Bill Clinton. An empty suit. An empty suit. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> but Barack Obama, to his credit, super fan, knows all the sketches, even the ones on the records. But that's like very show business. <laughs> like, you know, to not like the person that you that you feel doesn't like you. Like, I, I, honestly, I mean, this is an offshoot, <laughs> but I used to dog out Jimmy Fallon all the time. Like, uh, Jimmy Fallon, you know, his early days in Saturday Night Live, it was always be like, Jimmy Fallon, uh, it's just a cut rate. Adam Sandler. But then one time at a party, Jimmy Fallon comes up to me that never <laughs> happens and goes, oh, I used to watch a show you were on on MTV. It was so great. I love that show. And I was since. like stunned. And ever since I'm like, anyone makes fun of Jimmy Fallon, I was just like, hey, don't make fun of Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> He's great. So, Something you know, I'm similar it's very show busy. may have happened with me and James Corden, but I'll never admit it. Really? But he is such a talent. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he lights up my screen. He can sing and dance and host a talk show. Anyway, another one for the archives. That was really fun. It was a great interview. It was very, you know, kind of rambling. And But what do you expect? I mean, it's Chong. He felt... He's just Chong. He felt like an old, very eccentric, crazy friend that hangs out in the neighborhood, that you love saying hi to, and having these crazy conversations. He did not disappoint. Exactly. I don't think anyone on this podcast has disappointed you. No, no. Tommy certainly has not. He's definitely is just like the most down-to-earth guy who ever got $50,000 just to go to a meeting. That's a, I've never heard that one. That one's in it, it's unheard. So thanks for tuning in again. We ask you to send us your recommendations. We got a few recently, and they were great. So keep sending them. The email address is ihih at thr.com. Thanks for showing up to what was the penultimate episode of the first season of It Happened in Hollywood. And we'll see you next month for the season finale. Until then, we'll see you in Hollywood. Hollywood.